All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Luke chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. The words uh, will appear behind me on the screens when we get to the text. And, you know, I mentioned that we're going to be singing uh, Christmas songs together at the Christmas Eve service, naturally, and, and how much uh, I enjoy that. And everybody loves these songs, and for good reason. They, they are uh, deeply sentimental. Maybe you think about a particular Christmas song, and, and it takes you back to a certain place with certain people, and you remember that scenario like it was yesterday. So the Christmas songs are sentimental, and, and, and perhaps best of all, they're, they're rich with uh, theology and an understanding of who God is. So I'm glad we sing them. Um, but I think uh, one of the pitfalls to singing these well-known Christmas songs, these familiar songs, is in fact their familiarity. You know, we've sung these songs so many times that uh, we can actually be lulled to sleep rather than moved to worship by them. In fact, we, we sang, uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and that, that incredible verse, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own hearts from Satan's tyranny. And we can easily sing that because we've sung that so many times and it not even really register what we're singing. It just kind of goes right over our heads because, again, we've sung these songs a thousand times. Well, the same can be true, can't it, about the Christmas story, the, the birth narrative of Jesus. We've heard this story hundreds of times. You've read it and you've heard sermons about it. And so maybe for you, it's hard not to let this just sort of, not to just zone out and think, well, I know what this story is about. Well, it's such a fascinating passage that it's a bit like a diamond in the way that you look at it. You, every facet, every angle reveals something new, a bit like an onion perhaps, in that the more you peel back the layers, the more you realize just how much is there. And so we're going to uh, trust that as we kind of peel back some layers on this great narrative that God will speak to us and show us something as we do. So Luke chapter 2, and let me, we're going to cover verses 1 through 20. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the early part of the first century, the leader of the Roman Empire was a man named Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar wasn't his real name. His real name was Octavian, but he changed his name out of respect for his great uncle, Julius Caesar, who had become kind of a surrogate father to Octavian. Augustus, uh, as you know, was, was more of a title than it was a name. It just meant honored one or revered one. And Caesar Augustus, who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth, was a bad guy, but he wasn't as bad as some of his contemporaries. He was a man who had done some terrible, heinous things, but he wasn't as bad as some of the other rulers uh, of his day. On his rise to power, he was fairly ruthless, uh, taking a few lives along the way in order to maintain momentum and to solidify his authority. 
But once he became an emperor, he kind of mellowed out a little bit. He kind of softened a little bit. He, he became a very wise and a very successful ruler. In fact, he was so successful that those within the Roman Empire often regarded him as a god. He was worshipped as a god. And when he would do something extraordinary, it was called good news. It was actually called a gospel. This man was so respected and so revered that he was worshipped by the people. People looked at him with awe. More than any other ruler, perhaps Caesar Augustus filled the empire with hope. His regime, uh, many thought, would last forever. Well, Caesar Augustus was not only a strong leader, which he was. You know, leadership is just about influence. You don't have to be the boldest, brashest, loudest person. It's about influence. And Caesar Augustus was a strong leader, but he was also a very strong, terrific administrator. And as a way of ensuring balance and financial accountability in the world that he led and ruled, he ordered a census to be taken, which required citizens then all over the area to return to their ancestral home, their hometown, you might say, in order to be registered. So that meant that Joseph, who was living in Nazareth at the time, working as a carpenter, had to return to Bethlehem, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was betrothed. Now, we don't use the word betrothed a lot anymore, I guess unless you're the sort of person who talks about your cellular phone. Where did I leave my cellular phone? But we don't, we don't use, it's sort, of, it's sort of, you know, fancy language, right? We don't use that word, but uh, it was a very important concept uh, then. It's kind of like our engagements, but it was different. Um, it was more serious. Engagements can be ended. Betrothal, though, was binding. It was, uh, in effect, the first step of marriage. So the only thing that could, could break a betrothal was either divorce or death. This is the only way that, that a betrothal could be ended. So Joseph and his betrothed, Mary, had to make this trip. But this was no easy trek. Nazareth where Joseph was living and working as a carpenter, was over 75 miles from Bethlehem, and the terrain was rocky, and there were cliffs, and there were huge uh, elevations. And uh, so it was a very difficult and threatening trip that took as much as three days. Now, this is going to be challenging, as you can imagine, on many levels. Mary is due to have this baby at any time. Have you ever been around a woman who's about ready to give birth? They don't sleep well, typically. They don't travel very well. And they don't tend to have a sort of real laid-back demeanor, sort of a go-with-the-flow mindset, right? They don't typically say things like, hey, listen, I'm good with whatever. I'm good with whatever. You want to go on a 75-mile trip and put me on the back of a bumpy donkey for that time? No, I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. This is not the way that it would be, right? We have Mary who's about to give birth, making this very long and dangerous trip. And when she and Joseph finally arrive in Bethlehem, they find there's no place to stay. No vacancies. Nothing is available. So Mary and Joseph end up finding an animal shelter, we know as a manger from our songs, where there's no real bed for an expectant mother only a feeding trough, something designed for, for donkey, uh, donkeys and mules. It's there that Jesus is born. This is where the God of the universe would make his grand entrance in a place designed for animals to eat and lie. Now, here's why these details are so important 
This was not some random stroke of bad luck for Joseph and Mary. This was not a series of unfortuitous events. This was exactly the way God said the Messiah would enter the world hundreds of years before Mary and Joseph ever even met. Before Mary and Joseph even laid eyes on each other. God had already said, this is the way this will unfold. This is the way all this will go down. He, the Messiah, would be born in this little town of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born of the line of David, born in the most humiliating of circumstances. There are dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, at least concerning the birth of Jesus. And here in the text that I just read in Luke, they are being fulfilled, at least partially fulfilled. And here's the, the first point I want you to see this morning. The manner, location, and timing of Jesus' birth all testify to God's sovereignty. The how, the when, the where, all of these specifics are so important because they demonstrate to us God's sovereignty over all things. God has declared his plan from ages past, including the details and in Christ, we see this being carried out. The census ordered by Caesar Augustus, this was ordained by God. This was part of God's plan so that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, which the prophets foretold centuries before Jesus' arrival. The lack of vacancies in the end, this is all part of God's plan, again, to fulfill the prophecies of old. The timing, the location, the character, the details, all according to God's decree. Now, we talk about God's sovereignty. I said that all these things happen. This is a, these testify of God's sovereignty. What we're saying is nothing happens outside of God's plan. Nothing happens outside of what God has decreed would happen. So, it means every event throughout all of history is ordained by God for a specific reason to accomplish His divine purpose. Right? So, there's no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing as bad luck. There's no such thing as unforeseen events, at least from God's vantage point. God is sovereign over all of life, and he is graciously working out every detail for his designed end. Now you say, well, how, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, it's all over in Scripture. The Apostle Paul says it this way, God works all things all things according to the counsel of his will. Solomon, the, the, the wisest man to ever live, wrote this under the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the promise, the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So man makes his plans and devises his schemes. And we say, yeah, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to stay with this person for this amount of time and I'm going to do this. But the scriptures say, yeah, we make our plans. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Similarly, in Proverbs 16, we talk about even the most random things. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Even the roll of the dice, even the roll of the dice turns out exactly how the Lord plans, according to His infinite wisdom and sovereignty. And you know, sometimes in churches, the doctrine of God's sovereignty becomes this sort of hotly debated thing. It even becomes a, a, a doctrine of controversy. And people are saying, yeah, but we, you know, we got we to make sure that we see this right. And is God sovereign over 
natural disasters? Is God sovereign over catastrophes? Is God sovereign over people's salvations? Is God really sovereign over everything? And what happens is people start to argue over this, and it becomes a matter of uh, contention. But here's the thing. The consistent witness in Scripture is that the sovereignty of God is meant to comfort us. It's actually meant to comfort us. What could be more comforting than to know that our trials and tragedies and setbacks and failures, they're not just random things. The tragedies that we go through are not sort of random things in which we can have no hope, but actually they are ordained by God for our good and his glory. Remember when Jesus was in this tremendous anguish in the garden of Gethsemane and and the gospel writers use such powerful language. He sweat drops of blood. Um, he despaired even his own life. He was in such grief and anguish. He was vexed at the level of his soul. Where did he find comfort in this? Knowing what he was going to go through, both physically and spiritually, where did he find comfort? Well, it was in the sovereign will of God. He said, Lord, let your will be done. Let your will be done, Father, not mine as he was sending out his disciples and warning them about the persecution they would face, the same Jesus would say to them, look, don't be afraid. Not a bird falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. So you're going to encounter people who are going to hate you and they're going to rebel against you and they're going to try to kill you. Your own family members are going to turn against you. But he says, look, don't worry. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign plan. Not even a bird falls to the ground. Perhaps the most poetic of all examples of trusting God through hardship is, is, is Job. You know, Job lost everything. His health, his vitality, his reputation, his family, his children, his money. And what does he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The only way to say that is to recognize the sovereignty and the goodness of God. That he has a plan that's for our good, even when we don't see it. Here we are in this earth, we see things from a limited perspective, with a corrupt mind that's been broken by sin. And God is in the heavens where he sees all of it at once. He sees all of it. He sees it and he's working out a plan that's for our good and his glory. That plan actually includes the birth of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the return of Jesus. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. Now, it gets better. Look at verses 8 through 12. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. They're filled with fear. The angel said to them, fear not, common refrain for angels, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So there are shepherds out in the field and they're watching over their flock and an angel of the Lord appears to them. Now, before we get to the, what the angel says, just a word about angels, okay? Because when we think about angels, we've been influenced by art, a lot of medieval art and some Renaissance stuff. And, and we look at angels, we, we kind of look at them like this. This is a 19th century painting uh, called Song of Angels by William Adolf uh, Bouguereau. 
You see the angels. Now notice they got long flowing hair. They got kind of feathery wings. One, one sitting down actually has a headband on. I don't know where you got that back in the day. But so, they, so you look at it. We think this is kind of what angels are like, right? This is not the way angels looked. You have different types of angels that vary in rank, status, and office, but none of them wore headbands, and none of them were this sort of soft, genteel, right? I mean, think of it this way. Think less Taylor Swift, right, and more Chuck Norris. This, will give you, this gives you a little understanding, right? Less, more, less, less like Taylor Swift, more like Chuck Norris. Now, Chuck Norris is a bad man, isn't he? I mean, he's got a truck named after him now. You know, speaking of Chuck Norris, I just saw this recently. Maybe, maybe you said, do we have any, we have superhero fans, any Superman fans? I just read this last week and I didn't know this, but I guess the reason that Superman wears the outfit he does is because Chuck Norris and Superman got into a fight and the loser had to start wearing his underwear on the outside of his pants. <laughs> and so this is what he ended up with Superman. And I saw this too. I didn't realize this either, but I guess I guess Chuck Norris has a grizzly bear carpet in his room. The bear isn't dead, just afraid to move. Right? So, but the, you know, when you think about angels, you think less about sort of this soft and cuddly, and think more about someone who would actually strike fear into someone. This is what happens when people encounter angels. They're afraid, right? They tend to be afraid. They're scared. What do the angels say over and over upon their announcement? They say, look, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And here they scare the shepherds, but they, they, they say, we didn't come with a message of judgment. Look at verse 11. Again, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The shepherds say that this baby, they're informed this baby is, is the Messiah and the Lord. This who was born this day, he is the Savior. In Jesus, God made it possible for people to be saved. This is what the announcement indicates. But of course, that question begs, that begs a question, saved again from what? Saved from what? Well, when we think about salvation, we tend to think of people being saved from bad behavior. This is what salvation is. I used to do blank, but God saved me. I used to cuss, but now I don't. I used to smoke, but now I don't. I used to look at pornography, now I don't. I used to get angry, now I don't. If God saved you from those behaviors, praise God for that. But that's not really the essence of his salvation. In fact, the behaviors are only one symptom of something far worse, actually, and that's a condition. So the behaviors indicate a condition, a disease that we're all born with, the disease of sin, which means that we're all born estranged from God, alienated from God, right? Not God's friends, separated from him. And that separation, that alienation from God leads to all kinds of things. That disease leads to hatred and evil and despair, murder, oppression, racism, poverty, sexual perversity. These are all implications, all things that fill our earth because of the disease of sin, which we're all born with. And along with that, of course, is a sense of restlessness, a sense of guilt and fear. All that comes from being separated from God. The fourth century African bishop, St. Augustine, said it so beautifully. He said, after trying to find his satisfaction in so many other things, he said, everlasting God, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. 
The thing is, we'll look everywhere for satisfaction. We'll look to anything. We'll look to our own performance. We'll look to our grades. We'll look to, to sexual pleasure. We'll look to our achievements. We'll look for anything, to anything for satisfaction. But the thing is, we never really find it. Because we've been hardwired to be in relationship with God, but that relationship has been severed because of the falls we looked at several weeks ago of our first parents. So we're born actually not in relationship with God, not in a restored relationship with God, but actually we're born as condemned criminals, those under the wrath of God. And this is one of the consequences, again, of being born in sin. If you're, if you're here this morning and you've not repented and turned from your sin and run to Jesus in faith, you are actually at odds with God. You are separated from, you are against God. But God being a merciful and loving God gives us a chance to end our rebellion and be reconciled to him through faith alone. This is the message of good news that the angel brings. Not that good people get to heaven. That wouldn't have been glad tidings of great joy because there's no one good enough. It's not that good people get to heaven, but that God has made salvation possible for bad people, for bad people, for his enemies. God sent his son so that his enemies could be made right with him. I was spending some time in prayer not too long ago, and when the Lord impressed something unique on my heart that I hadn't really thought about. And when I go before the Lord in prayer, and you know, I've got this list of things, and I used to be a hard copy, but I've now, I use an app for that, which is actually really helpful. But this list of things that include things like confession, I begin with confession, my own sin, worship, uh, thanking God, praying for my family individually, praying for our church family, praying for you, praying for the persecuted church, praying for our country. So I go through this list, and not too long ago I was finished praying, and sometimes I get down on my knees physically, sometimes I don't. And, but that day I was on my knees, and I, and I got up from my knees, and I sat in the chair, and the Lord really impressed something upon my heart. And he helped me to realize there was something I wasn't praying for. It was not part of my rhythm at all. I wasn't praying for my enemies. But the Lord tells us we're instructed to pray for our enemies. But it's hard to pray for our enemies because if you pray for your enemies, that means you want something good to happen to them. Maybe it's repentance, but by praying for your enemies, it, it means, okay, I'm actually, I'm caring enough about you that I'm bringing you before the Lord, even though you're my enemy. Now, I've incorporated that into my regular rhythm of prayer, praying for my enemies, but it doesn't come easily to me. Well, think about this. God loved us so much. He loved the world so much that he sent his son for those who were his enemies. He gave everything for his enemies. The scriptures say, while we were dead in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. So this is the good news. This is the great news is that God has sent his son. He's loved his enemies enough to provide a way for them to be reconciled to him. This, again, is why the angels called their announcement good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Here, here's our second point this morning as it relates to this plan of God. The message of the Bible and the one the angels announced is that God has made it possible for mankind to be reconciled to himself. How many Christmas messages do you hear that don't really sound like good news to you? They sound like something you need to do. 
This is glad tidings of great joy because it is the announcement that God has made salvation possible even to his enemies. He has brought salvation down to man. See, every other religion has a prophet, a teacher, a leader who comes to provide rules to live by in order to get to whatever God it is. Now, the rules are different for every religion, but the, but the principle is the same. You know, Buddhism has the eight paths and Islam has the five, you know, whatever it is. The, the rules are different, but it's all the same principle. And the principle is that morality and good behavior are keys to appeasing the gods. Whatever god it is, whatever god that they worship, the principle is the same. If you do enough, you sacrifice enough, you give enough, you deny yourself enough, whatever it is, if you do enough, you can appease the gods. You can get to where God is. But Christianity says... Your situation is so bleak that good behavior will never be enough. By keeping the rules, you'll never make it. By doing good things, you'll never, ever get there. Because even your best efforts are not perfect. And that's what the holy God of the Bible requires is perfection. All those who would be with him must be perfect. In fact, he says if you break one law, I'm going to hold you accountable for all of it. It's the same as breaking all the law. So we're all guilty. But even though our situation is more bleak than we could ever imagine, the mercy of God is richer than we could ever dream. The angel announces to the shepherds and to us, the unique son of God has come to the earth to be our substitute, not just to show us a way to live. Praise God he did that. He is our moral example. But he's come to the earth to be our substitute, to live for us, to die for us, to pay for our rebellion, which is actually good news for all people, the angels say, in that salvation is not reserved for just one certain race or class of people, but all people, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And it's such good news. It's such good news that it leads to praise. First, there's one angel on earth with this message of hope, and then God sends a multitude of heavenly hosts to join. Look at verses 13 through 20. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away uh, from them, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I mentioned to you a few moments ago that the Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, when Jesus was born, was, he was a bad guy, but he was a pretty good ruler. And in fact, one of the things that he did is in his lifetime is he, he restored, he created in Rome this, uh, this period of unprecedented peace, unprecedented peace. Unless you were 
of Jewish descent. If you lived in the southern part of the empire, which was ruled by Augustus, the area of Judea that included Jerusalem, you were not at peace. That province was ruled by King Herod the Great. Now, under Caesar Augustus, but Herod kind of had his own agenda and his own prerogative. And you've probably heard the stories about Herod, haven't you? I mean, Herod was diabolical, egomaniacal. Herod was paranoid. Herod was evil. He was as evil as they came. This guy was wicked. He was deranged. He was always worried about somebody coming up to defeat him. So he lived in sort of this constant state of paranoia. Our oldest son is home from college, and last night we were sitting on the couch, and he said, have you guys ever taken the Enneagram test? So this is really a big deal at college and so on. And, we, and Janine and I both said, no, we haven't taken it. And so he said, well, you should take it. So he pulled up on his computer and, you know, handed it to each of us separately. And Janine took the Enneagram uh, test, and then I took the Enneagram. And there, I think there are 14 uh, screens or pages of questions. One of the questions that I was asked toward the end was, do you constantly fear that people are talking about you behind your back? Yes, no, or partly? Now, I answered no. Uh, I don't constantly fear that by the grace of God. But Herod couldn't have answered no to that. Because he was a guy who lived with such paranoia that he was always worried about who would come up and overtake him. In fact, it led to, led to him murdering people executions were almost a, reg a regular part of life when King Herod reigned. In fact, he even killed his wife and his two brothers-in-law. Well, if you have somebody ruling who, who exudes this sort of uh, craziness and paranoia, it creates a very sort of unstable environment, doesn't it? It creates a very unstable situation, a frightening environment. One historian writes this, the political climate at the time of Jesus' birth resembled that of Russia in the 1930s under Stalin, Citizens could not gather in public meetings. Spies were everywhere. And so Jesus the Christ entered the world amid strife and terror. All that to say, when the angels praised God and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, the shepherds, and probably anybody else for that matter, who heard such an announcement, would have likely concluded that this is a reference to political peace. This terrible, frightening environment under this diabolical ruler is going to be addressed by this Messiah who's going to immediately restore political peace. But the peace that Jesus came to bring was first of all peace with God. Peace with God. Now the Bible talks about peace in a variety of ways, but two ways most often. Peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God. Now, they're different things. The peace of God is the peace that comes from God, which is subjective. It's something you feel. It's something you, it's a transcendent feeling that regardless of what you're going through, things are going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. That's the peace of God. And maybe, maybe you've experienced this. You know, you've been dealt a terrible blow you, know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I don't think we know how to help you. Maybe you're, you're, you're hit with a, uh, the diagnosis of a terminal disease. Maybe someone that you really love and care about and you thought really cared about you has turned their back on you. And yet even in the middle of that, 
You don't come to ruin. There's somehow there's a peace about it, right? Somehow you, you, you have this sort of feeling that things are going to be okay. That's the peace of God. But because we live in a fallen world, it's not constant, right? We don't feel it all the time. Sometimes I feel really at peace. And I feel like, oh, I just feel this, this you know, you, to use poetic language, I feel the peace of God just wash over me, right? Sometimes I don't feel at peace at all. Sometimes I feel a sense of upheaval, a sense of upheaval, a sense of conflict. I don't feel at peace. The peace of God is subjective. Again, it's that transcendent feeling that even though nothing appears like it's going to be okay, I'm actually okay. And I'm not going to stress over it. I'm okay with it. But peace with God is objective. It's not based on feelings. It is, in fact, a position. It is a a, a place that we exist with and before God that's unchanging. Remember, we talked about because Adam and Eve sin, we don't come into the world morally neutral. We come into the world with hearts that are set against God. Now, whenever I say that, I remember, I think this was my first year in ministry. So way back in 2000, 2001, I remember talking about our, I think this was out of Romans 1, talking about our condition outside of Christ. And I said, even the sweetest, kindest, older lady who is apart from Christ is a vicious God-hater. And I had no idea how angry that would make people. I mean, people really reacted to that. I was young. I was 20, I don't know, 29, 30 years old. And people just thought, how can this guy say this, right? But the reality is, we, we, every person who is outside of Christ, who's not put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, is actually a God-hater. The most basic impulse of the human heart is to rebel against God's authority from our first breath. Now, we may not, we have no problem with the concept of God, most people. Most people are not, they don't care, they're not concerned about, they would not war against the concept of God, this idea of God. But a God whose voice thunders from Mount Sinai and says, I am God and there is no other. A God who says, you will love me more than father, son, daughter, wife, friend. A God who says, I am the absolute authority. A God who says that he he makes demands of our time, our money, our affections, and our loyalties. That God we cannot accept. By nature, we hate God's authority over us. We don't want to be ruled by anyone. And so we are against God, and God is against us. But Jesus came to end the war between God and mankind. He came so that that separation, that alienation, that enmity could be resolved by faith. He came actually to bring peace with God. Here's our final point. God's salvation equals peace with God. And then listen to this. The objective, never-changing reality of God's favorable disposition toward us. I love that, that sentence. And not just because I wrote it. I like the way that sounds, though. The objective, never-changing reality of God's favorable disposition toward us. And here's what I mean by that. Have you, do, you, do you have any friends? Have you ever had a friend who, when you were around that person, you never really knew where you stood? Maybe, you know, the passive-aggressive type. 
And you, you, you're around that person, you always kind of wonder like, I don't know, is he mad at me over something? What have I done? Is she upset at me? What, what, what have I done to her? I, I, I must have done something. I don't know what it is, but I've done something. And so you never really, you never really know kind of how things stand. So in pastoral ministry, I, I love people. I have to, I love people like that. And, I, and I'm going to shepherd people like that. And I'm going to pastor people like that. And I'm going to have people like that in my life. But I can't have those people as my closest friends. I can't have those people in my, my inner circle, so to speak. The people that you never know where they stand. You, you always get the sense that something is wrong. And you go to them and you say, you know, I, have I done something? Because it just feels like you're upset at me. They always say no, but you kind of realize, you, you know that I had this guy in my life a number of years ago who was a coworker, and, and, I, and he was always seemed like he was mad at me about something. And I had to go to him. I said, Marvin, what, what's, what's wrong here? Is something wrong? I said, no, nothing's wrong. I said, you, you're telling me nothing's wrong, but I know something is wrong. He finally then disclosed what had been bothering him. But when you're around people like that, it can be exhausting. Well, imagine if that's your relationship with God. You don't know at any moment how he feels about you. I know I did this, and I know I said I was sorry, but I I don't know, did he really receive it? I mean, are we good now? How does he feel about me? If you've turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, if you are among those with whom he is pleased, which just means you are a recipient of God's grace, that means you don't ever have to worry about God's disposition toward you. It's always loving. It's always in favor of you. Now, certainly we can sin against God. We can bring about his discipline. But even his discipline is carried out as love toward us. You don't ever have to worry. He is always for you in Jesus Christ. You have been made to be at peace with God. He always has your good in mind. He's working out things for your ultimate benefit. Now, will you suffer? Yes, we will suffer. Will you go through things that are terribly painful? Will you deal with loss? Yes and yes. But even though we may be utterly crushed by the weight of loss, even though we may be stunned by the betrayal of our friends, by the pain of illness, even though we may be brought to a place where we don't even have the words to say. Have you ever been there before? I don't even know what to say. All I can do is groan and pray. I don't know how to articulate what I'm feeling. Even though God may bring us to that place in his sovereign plan where the only thing we can come up with are deep groans and sobs. And even though we may suffer a kind of inward sorrow that makes us even long for death. Even though we may come to that place, the darkest of our hours we can know that God is sovereign and good, and even in those moments, he is working in this world to reverse the curse and to bring good to the people that he loves. That's why I said, I called this series, this Advent series, Hope Has Come. This is the hope for those who are in Christ. We can be made to be at peace with God. God has not abandoned this world. In fact, he sent his son into it to redeem it, to buy it back from its slavery to sin. This is the beauty of Christmas, God's perfect plan come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus has come, 
And for those, again, who have turned to him in repentant faith, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will always love us. He will always be with us. He will always be for us. We know that every wrong will one day be made right by him and that we have to look forward to an eternity in his presence where there'll be no more suffering, loss, and pain. This is the second advent, which the first advent anticipates. We have been made to be at peace with God. And peace with God, by the way, the peace with God leads to the peace of God. Knowing, experiencing that God is for us, that our sins have been forgiven, that we've been made right with our Creator, that the war is over between us and God, that actually leads to, incredibly, remarkably, peace, the peace of God. One New Testament scholar, Norval Geldenhoy, says this, when the inner, the inner harmony is there because the human soul has peace with its Lord, peace also spontaneously comes about in mutual relation between human beings. In other words, it's what Paul talks about in Ephesians, that, that God has destroyed the enmity, the war between God and man, and the war between man and man. So what this means is peace with God that leads to the peace of God, inner peace, relational peace. Yes, it's going to be up and down in this fallen world. Peace in our decisions. And we all want that, don't we? That peace that seems so elusive. Again, this is what Christmas is all about. Peace has come. Hope has come. And not just peace, but purpose and meaning in life. The absence of fear. The absence of guilt. All of those things are found in Jesus Christ. This is why we sing Emmanuel. This is why we praise the one who is God with us. When confronted with this miraculous encounter, what did the shepherds do? They believed. They believed. They made haste, we're told, to find the baby and make known what had been told to them. Mary, she believed. She treasured all these things in our heart. So this is the beauty and the hope of Christmas, but it must be believed. You must believe that we're actually hopeless and helpless and broken and sinful people must believe that God sent his son, not just to save the world generally or generically, but God came because of my sin and my rebellion. And when we believe, we are granted that salvation by faith, which is, in fact, peace with God, the unchanging, never-altering reality of God's favorable disposition toward us in Christ, the, the reality that God actually loves us on our best days and our worst days. And in that we find hope. Let's pray.